What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Nurse Ree, and you're tuning in to Forensic Nurse Files. This is an informative but fun true crime podcast that follows the careers of three forensic nurse examiners. We just want to note that this podcast uses foul language, some sarcasm, and contains descriptions of adult themes and violence that some people may find disturbing. So if you need support, please check the show notes or visit our website. Hey y'all, welcome back to part two of Youth Violence. We're just going to jump right back on into it. So here are some pre-pandemic stats for y'all. Um, in 2019, the CDC did a nationwide youth risk behavior survey, um, and this is something they do frequently, but it was given to high school students across the United States. And so out of 14,000 students, about one in five high school students reported being bullied on school property within the year before the survey. of high school students had been in a physical fight on school property one or more times during the year before the survey. More than 7% of high school students had been threatened or injured with a weapon, for example, a gun, a knife, or a club. Like Nurse Ellie said, her son was the victim of that as well. And almost 9% of high school students had not gone to school at least one day during the 30 days before the survey because they felt they would be unsafe at school or on their way to or from school. I mean, it feels like we're in a day and age, well, not feels like, we are definitely in a day and age where school shootings are happening more and more frequently. And um, a lot of times it comes up. And we'll find out after the fact that the school shooters were actually bullied. They were loners. They didn't have any friends, things like that. Yeah, and people want gun gun, um, control, which I can see that there could be, you know, I could understand an argument for that. However, a lot of the time, and we would have to look at the statistics for that because I'm not sure if you did, Bree, but how many of those who come back and commit a shooting at a school were actually victims of bullying. I don't know the numbers, do you? So according to the Safe School Initiative report from the United States Secret Service um, and Department of Education, 75% of school shooters felt bullied, persecuted, and threatened by others. You know, um, there are school-associated violent deaths. There's been a study on that, right? So and something that, again, is going to alarm our listeners. Homicide is the second leading cause of death among youth ages 5 to 18. The good news is that less than 2% of those homicides occur on school grounds, on the way to school, to or from school, or on the way from a social like school-sponsored event. So that's good. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear those statistics because it makes you feel like you don't even want to go to school or send your kid to school or anything like, you know, like let's put it in perspective. You know, the violent deaths versus the bullying are two um, grossly different statistics, right? You know, so that's something to keep in mind. Like, don't be afraid to send your kid to school, but just keep in touch with them. You know, talk to them, find out what's going on, you know, you know, make sure that you keep those lines of communication open. And we need to pay attention to the signs. Like, what are the signs? Um, so nearly 50% of homicide perpetrators um, give some type of warning signal. They might be making a threat, leaving a note, you know, um, before the event occurs. So with these school shootings and stuff, a lot of times there is some type of, they, they've seen some type of behavior or there's been some type of warning and nothing's done about it. So there are risk factors for youth violence. So um, a big one is history of violent victimization. So that person has been victimized violently themselves by, you know, another student, by 
a parent, by somebody, um, they might have, you know, things like, you know, diagnosis, like, you know, attention deficit or hyperactivity, maybe some learning disorders. Um, you know, sometimes those, um, they turn to um, self-medication, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, you know, sometimes they have a lower IQ, things that put them at risk, um, poor behavioral control, um, deficits in social, cognitive, or information processing abilities, high emotional distress, a history of treatment for emotional problems, you know, and a Again, exposure to violence and conflict in the family, things like experiencing those adverse childhood experiences like domestic violence in the family or drug or alcohol abuse in the family. You know, those are individual things. So then we have family risk factors, and some of those are authoritarian child-rearing attitudes. So parents who believe that what I say goes and there's no communication, there's no talking about it, you do what I say. Um, either harsh, lax, or inconsistent disciplinary practices. So a lot of times maybe parents are on different pages about things, like I said, either being too harsh or even being too lenient um, where kids have no rules at all. And that goes into low parental involvement as well. A lot of times um, when there is low parental involvement, kids are able to do whatever they want. Uh, low emotional attachment to parents or caregivers, so there's just not that child-parent relationship. Like we said before, communication between parents and children is super important. A low parental education and income, so low socioeconomic status. Um, parental substance abuse or criminality, so um, you become a product of your environment. Um, poor family functioning and poor monitoring and supervision of children. So once again, um, kids being able to do whatever they want. Right. Like just kind of feeling, you know, like you can do whatever you want. Like you can get away with whatever you want. There's no boundaries, actually. No accounting yeah, yeah. for your actions. And I think that like, you know, personally, I'll bring it in, in here. And I, I do personally believe that... Um, you know, accountability for actions at a young age is paramount to you know, accountability, you know, you know, at an increasing age. So if you're not held accountable for your actions, you can, you know, have any actions and you don't feel that there'll be consequences to those actions. So it could be small initially, but, you know, it can escalate over time, you know, so it's up to the parent or guardian or whoever to um, create boundaries at a young age. What do you think about that? I definitely agree with that. And just in working in peds, especially in CVICU, because a lot of the times our kids with heart defects need multiple surgeries and multiple procedures. So you see them come back and you get to kind of watch them grow, which is pretty cool. But when the boundaries are not set, which granted a lot of our patients, like I said, have been sick or are sick a majority of their life. So, um, Parents are a little more lenient with them, but when we do see them come back as, you know, teens, young adults, not all of them, but some of them uh, tend to be pretty defiant, non-compliant, um, don't deal with authority and being told what to do very well. Yeah, and there are some um, risk factors, peer and social risk factors. So if you have or see a child who... Um, depending on who the listener is, are you an educator? Are you a parent? Are you just, uh, you know, someone that knows somebody? But um, if you start to see somebody who associates with delinquent peers or 
they're involved in gangs, maybe they've had social rejection by their peers themselves, and maybe like a lack of involvement in activities that you would expect your kids to be involved in. You know, conventional activities, hobbies, sports, whatever it is. Uh, maybe you might see poor academic, you know, performance, or they're just really not at all committed to school or you know, they might have failure in school and that increases the low self-esteem, you know? So, um, you know, those are some of the peer and social risk factors. There's also community risk factors. So some kids, you know, at no fault to them, um, have a, you know, have limited economic opportunities. They may live in, um, an area of lower socioeconomic status, um, you know, just, you know, um, high levels of family disruption. So there are certain areas that, um, you know, certain social economic influences lead to, um, high levels of family disruption, domestic violence, substance abuse, et cetera, which we talked about. Um, and like just not having a commitment to the community, you know, like you have areas where people are super committed to doing things for their community, to raise it, to, you know, upgrade it. And there's others where they just don't, you know, really have that feel that need or that connection, you know, um, socially disorganized neighborhoods where there's really no camaraderie, I guess is the way I would put it. Like no, everyone's just kind of coexisting versus every man. For exactly. Themselves. Versus taking pride in like trying to make things better. And again, these are not, you know, these are risk factors. It doesn't mean that somebody from these different, you know, backgrounds is going to experience this, but it just is a risk factor that increases your, um, you know, your likelihood of being either a victim of or a perpetrator of that type of behavior. So let's talk about some protective factors. And these are just uh, things that can lessen the likelihood of a child being victimized. So some individual ones can be an intolerant attitude towards deviance. So this is a strong-willed child, someone who's not scared to speak up for others or say something when something's wrong. Uh, a high IQ, high GPA, high educational aspirations. So they're just doing really well in school and are motivated to do well in school. Positive social orientation, popularity acknowledged by peers, um, highly developed social skills and competencies, highly developed skills for realistic planning and religious beliefs. And as far as family, which I think is one of the biggest ones, protective factors that actually lead to those individual protective factors are um, connectedness to family or, you know, other adults outside of the family, you know, other family members, neighbors, um, church members, um, whatever, religious, whatever. Um, Being able to discuss problems with parents and that's a protective factor. So the more um, comfortable a child is to discuss these problems, the less likely they'll be a victim. um, shared activities, you know, with parents or other family members doing things together as a family and consistent presence of a parent during, um, you know, while they're awake times, when they're arriving home from school, going to school, maybe at dinner time, going to bed, there's some type of interaction between the parent and the child, um, and involvement in social activities, of course, that's kind of goes along with it. And, uh, parental family use of constructive strategies, for coping with problems. And what that means is you talk to your child about things that go on during their day 
you develop that relationship where, and you have that, those discussions and you talk about ways that they can, um, handle those, you know, those situations. And that was something that was always big for me with my kids is talking to them about when something went wrong with their day. I mean, for me personally, it could be different for everybody. I got the most information if I, when I picked my kids up from school, cause they just had everything on their mind and they just like had diarrhea in the mouth about everything. And then you could talk about it and, Oh, maybe if let's role play, let's go back to this situation. Let's do it differently. Let's see how it feels. You know, so it's taking the time and investing the time in your child to do those things. So that brings us to peer and social protective factors. So having effective relationships with those at school that are strong, close, and pro-socially oriented. So just having positive relationships at school. Um, commitment to school. So an investment in school and in doing well at school. Um, close relationships with non-deviant peers. Watch the company you keep because you are you know, who you hang around. Birds of a feather tend to flock together. Uh, membership in peer groups that do not condone antisocial behavior. So all of those after school programs, the elective classes, you know, band, dance, sports, um, even tutoring, whatever it may be that, that is nothing but a positive environment, it can do nothing but good for your child. And then, um, you know, definitely like intensive supervision, clear behavior rules, firm disciplinary methods, meaning like you say, you say what you mean, you mean what you say. So if you have a rule or a boundary set for your child, make sure you stick to it. And then um, engagement, engagement of the parents with the teachers. So it's very important that the parents engage with the teachers and not just be bystanders and expect the school to pick up where you left off because in this day and age, the classrooms are full, way over full, and you can't expect that there's any type of engagement. So you need to stay engaged with the educator, with the teacher to find out what's going on in the classroom. Find out how your child's acting. Have you seen any changes in behavior? Are they turning in their work? You know, what do you what are you seeing? Because, you know, the educators are with the kids, you know, a good portion of the day, the awake time, right? You basically wake up, get ready, you know, make your breakfast, take your kids to school come pick them up, do homework, eat dinner, take a bath, go to bed. Right. So your educator mm -hmm. is the one that's with your child. So if you're not engaged with the educator and you don't know what's going on, then you really don't know what's going on. You're on the outside. And so that's very important in the prevention of these types of either being a bullied student or being a student that bullies. And so this is just me being curious because I don't have any kids, so I don't really know how like school life works these days because back in my day if there was issues going on at school um the teacher or whoever would either call or send a letter home but that was before all the internet stuff so what is the communication like um nowadays with between parents and teachers so it, you know it kind of goes back to old school the, so there's texting mm -hmm. and there's emailing you know but there's also they you know you can still reach out and have a phone call, ask for a phone conference or an in-person conference with the teacher. And it, from my experience, they're very thankful for a parent that cares enough to do that because you got 40 kids in a classroom, probably, you know, 35 of those kids' parents are never going to reach out to you once in the school year. So I think they really um, respect a parent that reaches out and has enough concern to find out what's going on in the classroom. That's my experience.
and they'll still do it. They'll do in-person, they'll do a phone conference, they'll do um, texting, and they'll do emailing. But they're very receptive, and I think they're very appreciative of a parent that takes enough time to reach out because otherwise they kind of just fall into the mix of kids and they're pushing them through. That's my opinion. It's different. The classes are bigger, but the teachers all, um, you know, my daughter's a teacher and, um, you know, they're, um, very, very engaged with their students and they really care. And so the parent that steps up and really cares too, they want to do everything in their power to, you know, like to, you know, to support that parent, you know, in, because there's, it takes two <laughs> or three or four, but there's the school side and there's a the home side and the support, the teacher likes the support and the parent likes the support and the feedback. Because if you're on the same page, there's a higher chance that the kid's going to be successful. I mean, that makes sense. They always say it takes a village, you know, raising a child is no joke. It's no small feat. So another question I have for you about teachers while we're talking about schools and youth violence. Um, Do you know if teachers are experiencing a shortage, kind of like how nurses are? Like for nursing, we see a lot of, you know, maybe nurses from other countries coming in or we see a lot of travel nurses. For teachers, are there like a lot of substitutes or do you know what's going on with that? Um, I think there's a lot of teachers that are overworked and underpaid. That's my opinion. And so they don't give them the resources they need to do the best that they can. So they're, they rely on the support of parents for those resources or their own income that's not reimbursed. That's what I see. So they provide minimal resources for a teacher and it's up to the teacher to provide the rest themselves or to, um, you know, parent donations. And so it's not, um, they don't get paid a lot and they spend a lot. I'll tell you that. Wait, do you mean like school supplies? Like they're buying their own classroom supplies? <laughs> Absolutely. And they're also not able to write it off in their taxes other than a very small amount. I think it's $300, even if they spend $3,500. Whoa. I legit never knew that. You know, my, I told you my daughter's a teacher. She teaches, um, severe special ed, um, uh, nonverbal, uh, uh, she's in the regional autism program, her students in elementary school. And so they're nonverbal, all of them. And she spends, um, so much time and so much money on her students and her parents are super supportive and they donate and everything, but the amount of dollars out of her pocket is far more than she, than she could ever get reimbursed for. And they provide desks and they provide a TV and like a couple things like markers and soap and stuff, but that is about it. Well, first of all, shout out to your daughter. Oh my God, what a pure heart she has. She loves it. It's her passion. It's her heart. And so she loves every bit of it and she puts everything in her whole heart and soul into it. But, um, I think a lot of teachers do. I think she's not rare. I think that she's special, of course, for what she does. But I think the majority of the teachers do the same. Yeah, they just really love their job. You have to when you're not getting paid. And so what we do with these patients when they come through the ER is pretty much the same as what we do with our suspicious injuries or SIs, as we call them, um, because school fights do fall under the SI category. And in some instances, I can't remember, and Nurse Ellie, maybe you know, but um, I do remember some schools having like a deputy on site. Is that correct? 
it depends on where you are and what they're called, but they do have that mm-hmm. on campus. Um, and I think they're really there to advocate for the kids. However, the kids are often too afraid to talk to them or be honest because they're afraid of further. They're afraid of retaliation, further bullying, because because in, in all honesty, I don't think enough's being done about it. I don't think they're really solving the problem. So they, it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So they don't want to say anything because it's going to make it worse. And, uh, you know, and sometimes you just need to, uh, sometimes you just need to remove your child from the environment. And honestly, that's what a lot of parents, um, when they're at their last resort and they come into the ER and they end up seeing us, they say that they're at the stage of now wanting to remove their child from said school. And so it also depends on the school and wherever you are, because, um, when kids would come from certain schools, in my experience, um, and we would notify, or I would notify law enforcement, they would ask me if the school deputy has been notified. Um, and so sometimes I kind of got the runaround with that. But for the most part, law enforcement would always um, take the report no matter what. And so, like I said, we would just get a statement from the child about what happened, document their injuries, notify law enforcement. Um, the parents are usually the ones who brought them in, so they don't need to be notified. And then um, we just complete our paperwork and go from there. If whatever incident occurred involved an adult or maybe there was um, something like a sexual assault as a part of it, then we might have to notify DCFS, which is the Department of Child and Family Services or CPS, um, Child Protective Services, whatever, whatever other, um, you know, agency that we see fit needs to be involved, we would involve. Parents, <laughs> guardians, whoever you are pay attention to your kids. If they're isolating themselves in their room, if they're displaying any of these behaviors, like they cared about school. Now they don't care about school. They're not doing very well. They seem kind of apathetic about school in general, or they're just in fear. They don't want to go. Like they just are resistant. They they say they're sick or, you know, they don't want to get up. Pay attention. You know, don't just like brush that off. Talk to your children. Don't let them sit in their room because it's easier for you. Talk to your children. Find out what's going on. You know, um, because I can, you know, I can remember. It's been a long time since I've been in school, but I can remember those fears, that anxiety, feeling like you don't fit in, you know, and like, you, you know, as like how you should. And, you know, and that can lead to, um, you know, those feelings that lead you to be a victim, you know, or to be a perpetrator. So, you know, pay attention to your kids. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning into part two of Youth Violence. We hope you're enjoying our series. Just a little fair forewarning. The next couple weeks are going to be some pretty heavy topics. We're going to talk about some deep, dark shit. So listener discretion is advised. But until then, stay safe and we'll catch you on the next episode.